This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two fantastic people that I know, Paul Jaceley. Hello. And Nick White. Hey. Thank you both for joining me this week. We're back, I guess. We were here last <laughs> week, but we're back again, as we are every week. And uh, I don't know, there's not a lot to say. I hope everyone enjoyed the annual episode last week where we kind of talked about some things that we're doing in the future. We've already got some of those plans in motion, recording special episodes of things that are going to be available on our, our Patreon and maybe some other places during the summer. We'll see. But if you have anything else that you want to hear from us, just let us know. I was on a show for another podcast this week to talk about just like random things with a buddy of mine. And he kept suggesting the idea of us opening a Telegram chat for the general public. That's something that I'm thinking about. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. Let's actually get and talk about comic books. I feel like the opening of this episode is just... It's going nowhere. <laughs> I'm very distracted. We started talking about wrestling before the show started. Now that's all I can think about. So let me ask the question. That I let me ask the question that I ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Paul. Uh, I'm doing well, Mike. Um, uh, the great winter blizzard here in West Michigan of 2019 is, is subsided for now and it's starting to melt, which is a whole other bunch of headaches. But, um, mm -hmm. uh, I've taken that time, the, uh, the poor weather to, uh, stay inside and read a bunch of comics. So I've been binge reading a ton of stuff lately and, uh, it's good. It's real good. Um, but I do have one nitpick and Mike, maybe you can talk to me about this. Sure. I read Batman number 63 by Tom King and, uh, Michael Janin. Oh yeah. Janine. And I didn't like it. And I realized I haven't really liked an issue of Tom King's Batman in probably since issue 50. So yeah. it's been a while. The wedding. Um, I mean, I've, yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you, Paul. I feel like it's had its ups and downs, but mostly it's been down. That's, I yeah. don't know. I, I like the, like, personally, I really liked the Bruce Wayne convince me that Batman is wrong <laughs> issue. <laughs> or oh, like, sure. yeah. like little mini arc that they did. But otherwise... Yeah. I don't know what the end goal is, and it feels like Batman 63 was just another issue that where Tom King is trying to confuse us as the readers, and it doesn't feel like there's a clear out as to how we get out of this weird dream sequence thing that Batman is in. Um, right. I'm trying to yeah. be vague here, not spoil like what I think is actually happening, but... Um, Guys, can you yeah, hold on? I, I, I need to reset the counter. Um, it's been It's now been zero, zero days since we talked about the perils of double shipping. Uh, so, <laughs> all right, we're reset. I, we're good. We're good. I do, th I do think that might be part of the issue. That's been an issue mm -hmm. for Tom King's entire Batman run for me. But so since the wedding issue, it, there's been little, you know, two or three issue little story arcs, and they've been there. Like Mike said, there's been ups and downs. Some of them I liked, a lot of them I haven't. But the problem is, it feels like the title's in a holding pattern until. You know, we get to like what issue hundred or whatever the next big thing Tom King has planned is. And like, <laughs> right. Yeah. The past few issues have been these one and done stories called nightmares. You know, with a K, of course, nightmares because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. the Dark Knight. <laughs> and um, and they are just this idea of like Batman's facing this the worst possible thing he could imagine. Like the last issue was him and Professor Pig. Um, that issue is, did not absolutely nothing. It didn't advance the story at all. It was just like a, a done in one story that probably could have been done in eight pages, but instead it's a 22 page comic and there's another one coming out in two weeks. And I do think that the pacing of the issues doesn't work for a double ship book. Since most of the issues are feel like filler to begin with, you get twice as much filler each month, each month. So I will say as much as I haven't liked it, 
I have been liking the artwork. At least Tom King is picking interesting artists to work with, like Michael Janine <laughs> on this one. Definitely. You know, yeah. um, the Mitch Jarrods was the um, the last issue with Professor Pig. That issue mm-hmm. looked gorgeous. It looked lovely, but I just could not get into the story at all. So I'm still going to keep buying it just because it's a Batman title. And um, but <laughs> it's one of those things that, you know, I buy it. I flip through it in five minutes. I'm like, all right, that's that. You know, it, it doesn't have sticking power the way that a lot of the, the early issues of his run did for me. I agree. I agree. I'm really, really confused as to what the actual end goal here is i mean i shouldn't say that i don't know what it is because it's it seems very very plain to me like what actually is happening and what they're trying to get to but i don't know it's it does feel like we're just building to we're waiting for like an issue marker to actually do the big reveal versus just telling a story exactly yeah on the other hand a comic i read this week that i actually really enjoyed was the second issue of conan the barbarian from marvel comics Uh, this is a new series written by Jason Aaron, art by Mahmoud Asar, and colors by Matthew Wilson. Uh, so the book, first off, looks lovely. The artwork by Asar is fantastic, and of course, Matthew Wilson's colors look amazing. Um, and Conan the Barbarian is one of those characters that I've always been interested in, but have never actually read any of the original prose work. Obviously, I've seen the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've read some of the comics that... Um, I think Dark Horse did uh, maybe about five, five or six years ago. Oh yeah, that and, was like a big, a big flagship for them. Yeah, and Becky Cloonan worked on some issues of that stuff. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that. Um, and then, so I was curious about this. I felt like big, strong men killing giant, you know, snakes with swords is kind of Jason Aaron's mo at this point, and kind of what <laughs> I like him doing. So yeah, and luckily that's what this issue was: uh, Conan fighting giant uh, ghost snakes in the in the forest. But oh man, this has got. This is a D&D campaign. That's that's all that it is. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I mean, I can Thor see that. was already I could, a fantasy I, book for him anyway, right? So, And that's my point, Nick. I think that uh, this first arc that he's doing on Conan is basically the opening arc he did on his Thor book, where you had the young Thor and then the, you know, the old Thor and our Thor sort of all teaming up at certain points the, you saw the journey of Thor becoming, you know, the King of Asgard. And then this, apparently the story is going to be us following Conan's adventures as he becomes King Conan at the end of the arc. So it, it's basically the same story they did with Thor. Just, just, he has a, a sword instead of a hammer. Gotcha. Um, uh, but no, it, that's the thing. It's it's not groundbreaking comics. I think Jason Aaron could probably write these kind of stories in his sleep. Um, but they're really fun and exciting stuff. Like Conan's a character that's so one note, they kind of do anything with them. And I, I just really like this type of adventure comics. They are sort of just, you know, like fluff or like a popcorn movie or just exciting action. But I, I kind of dig that. Sometimes you want something that's sort of just light and action filled like that. Um, and it, honestly, it does make me curious to go back and read some of the stuff Marvel did in the 70s with Conan because they did Savage Sword of Conan and mm-hmm. King Conan and all that stuff. So... And apparently we're getting two more Conan titles in the next few months here. I don't know if I'm going to be picking those up, but I might stick with this one for a while since I enjoyed the second issue so much. Cool. I, I was looking forward to just picking this up in trade. It mm-hmm. Jason Aaron does a really good job telling action stories, so I'm, I'm super into trying it. I just don't know if I can read it month to month. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. I heard like some weird rumor that they were going to actually try to shoehorn this title into the Marvel Universe. Hmm. <laughs> maybe there's no indication I, of that but I, I i think probably what they meant to say or what i was supposed to understand was that it's becoming its own sort of like like it's a universe they're going to build around 
Oh, okay. Which, yeah. as as evidenced by the other two books you said that are on the way, so. Yeah. Oh, good. Another universe to buy into. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you want to. Exactly. It's your yeah. choice. Anyways, Nick, Nick, how have you been? How have comic books been? All that jazz. Um, you know, speaking of uh, Thor, um, I've been a little bit uh, Thor myself. I uh, shoveled too much of that wet snow yesterday. Um, Get out of here. Yeah, Podcast sorry. is done. <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, and uh, I don't think I really thought about it. And then I was like, hey, what's a better thing to do uh, following that up than to go over and hang out and play some video games and play some like horror games where I was like, I, I mean, looking back, I was like super tensed up, really bad posture for a couple hours, not good. But look, let's be honest, like when you're playing The Evil Within, right? Okay, we, we, we've all been there, right? We've all been there. Sure. You're running around in a secret underground bunker uh, where a man who has a uh, safe for a head, who's called the Keeper, is chasing you around with a large hammer trying to kill you. Meanwhile, the room's filling with poisonous gas, which is also blurring your vision, and he's emerging from the fog to try to kill you as you're trying to close the vents. We've all been there. We've all played the game. I know I'm yeah, just totally regular stuff. We've all we've all <laughs> we've, we've all played the Evil Within. We've all been there. No, anyway, no, we haven't. Okay. Well, no, anyway, that's what happens. Uh, it's basically uh, someone who said I've played Silent Hill and Resident Evil, and I'm just basically gonna steal ideas from that, which is fine. Uh, he worked on Resi, so it's okay. Uh, anyway, so that's what I did in terms of what I read. Um, I guess equally dark, equally uh, uncomfortable stuff, in keeping with the theme here. Um, I read Nanjing, The Burning City by Ethan Young, who wrote and penciled it. This was published by Dark Horse in preparation for this episode. Uh, it surrounds the events of the Imperial Japanese Army seizing the city of Nanjing, the former capital of the Republic of China in December of 37, a few months after the Second Sino-Japanese War commenced in July of 37. It's also called the Nanjing Massacre, involved the mass murder of 300,000 civilians slash POWs over a six-month period. Um, it's dark stuff. It's really dark stuff. It follows yeah. a Chinese captain and one of his soldiers attempting to flee the city after the rest of their regiment has been killed. Uh, it's a super dark book. It's not gratuitous with the violence. Like, it doesn't really relish in it. It doesn't, like, you know, grab you by the scruff of your neck and, like, hold you and look at it and be like, wow, isn't that, like, kind of crazy? Like, can you believe that? But it also doesn't hide the fact that this dark side of humanity exists. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really, yeah. like sit there and chew scenery and be like, you know, you know, but it, it, like I said, it also doesn't hide the fact that some really unbelievable, terrible stuff happened. Um, I can't speak much more to length about this book because I really haven't read much else on the topic other than this book. So other than to say, um, uh, it was a very moving, super dark book that I would, I would recommend to anybody who, um, uh yeah just just to anybody it's it's a very moving pretty dark book on a slightly lighter note and oh boy like before uh, well before you move on yeah. i will say if anybody does want to know a lot more about the actual story that nick is talking about here the history regarding it there is a, a podcast called dan carlin's hardcore history i know it's not for everyone because the episodes are like four to six hours long it also has hardcore like, in the title so that might yeah not yeah be i mean it's got i mean they're four to six hours long they come out once every couple of months 
And uh, so like three or four, like one episode comes out every six months. So you're getting like six hours of content for every six months, which isn't too bad. Um, but right now he's, uh, Dan Carlin is currently going into this entire story about uh, the Nanjing Massacre, the Nanking Massacre, depending on which title of the city you want to call it. The Chinese right. call it Nanking, the Japanese call it Nanjing. Um, it's a really, really interesting story. Um, if you're very curious about the history of it, he goes into a very very granular um history about it so um if you're into it if you want to read this book and then maybe listen to this other thing and hear about the horrible horrible things that happened during you know the 1930 year 1937 that's i would recommend that i guess <laughs> uh the other book i read briefly uh was hellboy and the bprd this is the trade for the first quote-unquote year of it 1952 uh this series is basically running in years and while most years largely consist of a singular arc uh some of the um some of the more subsequent volumes have been sort of a combination of one shots and arcs combined but the first year 1952 is only one arc uh this is written by mike mignola and john arcudi well they both have a story credit we both know mignola is more advising and arcudi's actually writing it uh alex maleev on pencils dave stewart on colors clem robbins on letters I really like this series because it's almost sort of like a rotational artist, kind of just a sort of show up and do your thing in the same way that TMNT Universe is getting people like Bill Sinkovich over there, where it's just more of like an interesting, like rotating artist thing where it's like, let's just see your take on these timeless characters. So I really like that, uh, which is interesting because as it is with a lot of people, Hellboy without Mike Mignola pencils is always a little bit of an interesting experiment, especially with someone with like Maliv, who is like a real departure from Mignola, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, the series kicked off right around the end of 2014. And this focuses on Hellboy's first mission as a field agent within the BPRD, which is like kind of surprising when one thinks about the fact that Hellboy is around for nearly 20 years before someone goes, hey, like, maybe we should tell the stories about the first time he was an agent. Like, I think we've all read (laughs) comic books long enough that, like, that is, like, a gimme in terms of, like, a, like, a, geez, what story, like, what story do I have left to tell? Well, (laughs) you know? Right. (laughs) Like, that, like, early days as, you know, doing whatever, that's just, that's just such a gimme that I'm just surprised it took this long. Um but I enjoyed it. Uh, it involves a, a crazy f- fucking demon monkey with long white hair um, and electrodes sure. in his head that's trying to kill people. Uh, but this book does answer the fundamental question, how many cybernetically enhanced monkeys armed with knives can you fit into a 1950s sedan? Uh, <laughs> the answer is five. For those oh, wondering, okay, it's five. <laughs> oh my god like the more i think about it like what is it with mike mignola having like monkeys attack people in the hellboy books because it is a thing like we've all seen the image where hellboy's like he's got a gun you know we've all seen that panel you know Uh uh-huh like (laughs) i'll have to find that and put that in the show notes that'll be good does mike mignola have like some deep-seated phobia from like a trip to the zoo when he was eight or something (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's it's interesting to see other people drawing Hellboy, of course. And so, yeah, check it out. Gotcha. Well, I uh, I read Deep Roots number one through five because Kate reminded me that I really need to go back and reread that last week. So I sat down and read that. Um, 
ultimately, I don't need to go into it because I think we've talked about it enough on the show, but I will say reading this entire run in one go makes me feel really bad for the planet. Um, Because that seems to be the overall (laughs) message. What's like the two-sentence elevator pitch on this book again? Imagine if plants were trying to take back the universe because we killed their god. Okay, sure. Okay, And that's that's pretty much the story. And humans are just kind of like, shit. And then the story goes from there. So I also read Isla number five and six, which is strange because Isla number five was the last issue of the previous arc, the first arc of the book, and number six was the first issue of the next arc. And I took a long time to read these, just, I don't know, I've been just putting it off, just like I've been putting off a ton of other books. But um, this is a book by Carl Kershaw and Brendan Fletcher, with Carl Kershaw on art and M. Sassy K, a.k.a. Michelle, I'm going to butcher this, but let me try, Michelle... Asaris corn, I'm I'm sorry, I really tried. Um, but basically, like this this book is really easy to read, and that's what I really loved about it. Like reading five and six, I didn't feel like I missed a ton by waiting too long um, to we to read issue number five. And number six is the beginning of this new arc. Honestly, this book is just beautifully done because there's not a lot of dialogue and so much of the story is told through the art. Like, Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw working together to tell this story, it's very apparent. It, you can definitely tell that Brendan Fletcher is scripting it and Carl Kershaw is doing the art and they're working together to write the story in conjunction versus just having <laughs> giving the script to somebody and then they illustrate it. Um Weren't they the, both on Gotham Academy, or was that just Kershaw and no, Fletcher was the I think Batgirl that they did both. Reboot, I think that was a Batgirl title, yeah. Or maybe both. It could be. I, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but the, yeah, the, there's there's just so much of this book that I really in, enjoy. Like, um, I'm going to just call it by the, the name that's given in the book, M. Sassy K. Uh, the colors in this book are phenomenal and really make the book a a perfect well-rounded story from beginning to end without the coloring work in this book it would not be the same hands down if you threw any other colorist at this book even even our infamous you know betty brightweisers or our jordy belairs or dave stewart's i don't think you would get as good of a book the color palette chosen for this story is unbelievable and it's amazing and it's very unique to this book it's a fantasy story that blends a bunch of different cultures from you know our regular earth and somehow makes it very neon. It makes me feel like the some of the, the book colors. The Lisa in, Frank color palette, right? And that's not a put down. No, and I that's like that's that actually, palette. <laughs> no, no, that you're thinking the Jen Bartel book that came out, and that's that's a different book. This one has it's a lot of like pastel neon colors, which is a weird way to describe that. Like lots of light blues and light pinks compared to the uh, Jen Bartel book that you're thinking of, which is a lot of like hot yellows and hot pinks. What's um, the one with the tiger that's on all the covers? Or it's a tiger or something like that. Well, that, that. is this book. <laughs> I don't think it's Lisa Frank-esque. Lisa Frank is a lot harsher. Anyways, Isola number five <laughs> okay. and six was amazing. We've been wasting too much time discussing this. I, um, this, I think this is going... This is this is meaningful conversation, Mike. I, I disagree. Well, this is, what's... What I really enjoy about this is that so much has happened in the story to progress it. Like, we've met so many characters, and they've expanded so much on the world, but it also feels like very little has happened. It seems like the characters haven't made as much distance in where they're trying to go, to try to go to this fabled place called Isola, and it 
it's which is great. Like there's so much to this book to unpack. I'm really excited to keep reading it. I'm very very hooked, and I think a lot of other people I saw put this on like a best of list um, all last year, and I totally understand why. The first arc ends really well. Number six picks up right where they left off, and it's just an incredible book. I really recommend this if you haven't already checked it out. Wait for the first arc to come out into trade. I really think it's a good solid. Not over-the-top fantasy book, but it is in a fantasy style. There's knights and magic and all that stuff, but it doesn't feel overwhelming like, say, a Sleepless or maybe a Rat Queens or something where the, the medieval like fantasy um, location like is the cr- is a crux of the book. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's just a piece of isolate. It's very well done. I really enjoy it. So anyways, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, comics are coming out. On February 6, 2019, let's talk about what books we're excited for this upcoming week. Let's start with you, Nick. Sure. So my pick for this week is Sword Daughter number 6. It's written by Brian Wood, uh, drawn by Mac Chatter, and the colors are by Jose Villarubia. Let's just say uh, Chatter firmly belongs on the Nick White official list of underrated pencilers, along with Mark Lamming and Juan Ferreira and others. He's, he's really, really good. He did brian woods briggsland before this mm-hmm. um i'm not still crazy about the 4.99 price tag but it is a 28 page book every month so i guess that that's something um i'm still shocked with how little this book is talked about maybe people feel that like brian wood already did northlanders and oh geez he's doing vikings again <laughs> which doesn't even maybe. count the <laughs> image title he did that was also the long road or whatever i mean he's he just he just fucking loves vikings what do you want so I mean, yeah, it's 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 very high concept fair around the turn of the first millennia. Families' villages attacked by a criminal uh, gang. This is in Scandinavia. They kill everyone except for this guy and his daughter. And the guy goes sort of into like a catatonic state, and he like can't handle the event. And his daughter ends up getting raised by like nuns for a while, so he doesn't even like really know her for like ten years. And then he like comes out of it finds out she's kind of been checking in on him and taking care of him and realizes he's kind of been a real bad dad. And um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's interesting. I don't, maybe someone who's smarter than me, and I realize that's a very long list and a big category, but will understand exactly why the daughter basically speaks in pictograms. I'm not certain if it's because she ends up raised by people who don't speak her own language. And so... Um, he, he doesn't understand her or if it's that she actually like only learned like a little bit of the language. And so there's like, cause like, like he'll be talking to her and then she'll talk back mm-hmm. and it'll just show like an image of a fire or like, if she doesn't want to do something, it'll show like an mm-hmm. X, like, like sort of huh. like the idea that she's like not, not approving. So I, I don't really understand if it's that she like doesn't know how to speak the language or just has a raw grasp. Or I, it's it's interesting though because you have this like constant language gap going on between the two of them, and anyway, the dad decides that he's going to avenge his wife, begins a quest to kill as many of the forty swords. That's the gang that destroyed the village, uh, and his daughter comes along for the adventure. Hence the title, Sword Daughter. Um, the more insurmountable task is whether or not Dag can actually uh, mend the trauma of not really being there for Elsbeth, his daughter. He was kind of a bad dad. What do you want? Um, I just recently read four and five, and it's 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 a great book. You've got like the forty swords, like they're actually getting pretty good at killing these guys, and so the forty swords end up putting a bounty on them. 
and then you end up with the the, the two of them staying at a monastery populated solely by white-robed women who have visors that look like <laughs> Captain Cold's visor. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck this book is now. What is going on? In the past, it was the future. Yeah, there's like a training montage. They're like, I can teach you to fight in a manner that suits you. And it's a, it's a, it's a like throw the egg, catch the egg montage or you don't get to eat breakfast. Like this book is crazy. And that doesn't even get into the fact that this book has these random flash forwards that are just totally unannounced. There's no captions. There are no, there's no like, well, it was the year 992, but now it's the year, whatever 15 years ahead of that is. I'm not going to do quick mental math on the show and look like a dumbass. Nice try. I'm not going to fall for that. Um, okay. So the color palette switches to blue and you're following the girl and it's maybe like 15 years later, but they're only slowly filling in the pieces of like what happened during that 15 year period. And let me tell you, like this book turns a real big trope on its head because you start to not see the dad in any of these flash forwards 15 years later. And naturally, if you've read, I don't know, a book, any book, maybe five books, you start to (laughs) mentally in your head fill in the gaps. And then this book just goes, yeah, that's what I thought you were going to think, you dumb motherfucker. And then hard 90 degree turn. And I am just shocked. Like... Don't spoil too much. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not going to say anymore. I'm not going to say anymore. All I'm going to say is like, <laughs> your brain probably went the same place my brain went, and yet now I'm surprised. I don't know why nobody is talking about this book. Honestly, <laughs> I need a deep, in-depth analysis of this, Nick. It's it's beautiful. Plus, oh, yeah. Greg Smallwood covers. Greg Smallwood covers. Anyone who was like not even kind Ooh, of on the fence is now fingers. buying the book. Ooh, like, chef kissy fingers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, this is, I, I, again, this is another book I was waiting for trade. I'm probably going to pick this up as soon as the first trade drops. So thank you for convincing me even harder to buy this book. <laughs> well, you're coming in at the right time because it had some shipping problems. Because I think like the first issue was like in the like June, maybe even May. Okay. Hmm. And then it had some delays for gotcha. a couple months. So Cool. Paul, what about you? What are you excited for this week? I am excited for the Green Lantern number four. This is the new Green Lantern series written by Grant Morrison with art by Liam Sharp. I think I talked about the first issue of this series a while back on the show, and I made the comparison that it felt like Grant Morrison mm-hmm. doing a 2000 AD story, and that, that continues to be the case. The third issue especially felt like a, <laughs> uh, a 2000 AD story. Weird aliens, it's, you know, kind of... Uh, there's a humor to the book. Um, the artwork, Liam Sharp's artwork, is very reminiscent of early 2008 stuff I've read. And, um, you know, the third issue, there, the opening sequence was the planet Earth had been basically kidnapped and miniaturized and being put up for auction. And these various, like, aliens were trying to, like, bid, outbid each other to try to capture, <laughs> you know, to get planet Earth. So they could be, essentially, they could, you know, do whatever they wanted with it, either enslave all of humanity or be a god to the planet, you know, whatever you want if the, for, the pri- for the right price. Um, mm-hmm. that's such like a, a silly, like, I was going to say, that just seems like such like a classic over the top sci-fi, you know, trope that oh, I didn't sure. really expect to see in a, in a superhero comic, you know? It's got that 2000 AD, like little bit of humor, like little bit like constant humor undercurrent that you find in like all of their books. It sounds like. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, the way that Morrison writes the Green Lantern Corps, there are moments where it does feel like he's trying to do Judge Dredd in space, which is kind of great. Um, That's fine. You know? <laughs> that's not a bad I love thing. This. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's, I mean, that's right in my wheelhouse. I'm actually really enjoying the book because of that. And it's, it, it, that makes the book even weirder than I expected it, or maybe weird in ways I didn't expect the book to be weird, you know? Mm-hmm. But I don't want to give away too much about issue three, but it ends in a way that Hal Jordan acts in a way I've never seen that character act before. And I wonder if human? it really is. Someone with feelings? Well, Not so, a jerk somewhat. off. I mean, I mean I, I'll, I'll put it this way. It, if... It's either a couple, it could be a couple different things. Either it's going to turn out that Hal Jordan was, you know, acting out of his, not in his own mind when he did okay. what he did at the end of the issue. And Grant Morrison is going to reveal like, oh, there's a twist here down the road. Or DC is letting Grant Morrison change the character completely, gotcha. which would be fascinating. Because it, oh, no. maybe, I mean, it does, it does feel like. And it does feel like a commentary on, you know, contemporary debates about, you know, police brutality and police oh, okay. conduct, okay. you know. So he is doing the Green Lanterns as space cops, but in a very contemporary, like, you know, we, we should really think about what authority means and what policing means. And, you know, the idea of corrupt cops or police brutality, these are real issues. And it feels like he's maybe trying to engage with those. Whether or not he can pull it off nuancedly in a nuanced way, uh, I'd be curious to see. I mean, that's not exactly Morrison's mo to be nuanced, you know. So, (laughs) but uh, overall, I'm really impressed by how much I like this book, especially that third issue. The end, the twist at the end, just really kind of blew my mind. Like, I can't believe they let him do that, and I can't wait to see how they're going to explain that away or double down on it. Either way, would be fascinating. God willing, what you're getting at is a crossover with the KFC books once more, and. Mm. uh, they're now canon. <laughs> I could only hope. God, I could only hope. Well, it sounds oh, like man. they've got Morrison right in the sweet spot of being weird, but not like unchained and loopy like he occasionally can be. I, well, you know, I this is a whole other discussion. I have a discussion we've had on the show before, but, yeah. um, you know, I don't think Graham Morrison is as off the rails as people try to paint him. You know, I think maybe if it wasn't for that Chris Burnham book that I can't think of the title of that I would. Yeah, I don't know. That book always comes to mind, even though I can't think of the title. The Nameless, which, um, you know, I don't without going too far down that rabbit hole. I I went back and reread it and actually enjoyed it a lot more than I did the first time. So it made a lot more sense on the reread. So I'll I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, that's fair. Cool. Well, uh, this I. Judge Dredd in space. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> right. We got to move on. Um, so for me, I'm excited this week. Uh, no surprises here. Age of X-Men, the, the marvelous X-Men number one. This is by Zach Thompson and Lolly Nadler uh, with art by Marco Fiala. Um, I want to say that I can't believe how much I like the Age of X-Men one shot that came out. So they got me. They fucking hooked me for all these goddamn Age of X-Men miniseries. Six of them. They achieved Six the impossible. Them. I just want you guys to know that I'm I'm doubling down on my stupidity and I'm buying all of the Age of X-Men books because all the teams and all the everything in this whole little <laughs> nice package that they have looks great. I just hope that each mini is independent and not constantly making reference to the other books, but my prediction says that my hopes are hopeless because that's what they always do because they want you to buy all the books. Too late, suckers. I'm already buying all the books. So, gotcha, Marvel. <laughs> 
No, I, I really, really, truly enjoyed all the nice little twists and turns that they did in that first issue, um, the little one-shot that they did to start this whole event off, and I'm really curious to see how they play things out. Like, it all feels incredibly temporary, more so than something like House of M or any other major the world has now completely changed X-Men story that um, the X-Men just kind of do all the time. This one seems just like fun. Like, this is a fun romp, and they're just leaning into, hey, you guys want to see what if Bishop was in a romantic relationship with this person? Oh, yeah, you wouldn't even believe it. Guess what? He's going to jail. Like, let's just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And I think they're doing some really fun, ridiculous things. What if Nightcrawler was a movie star for some reason? Let's do that. Um, what if there was like an extremist group that was led by Apocalypse, and he's maybe the good guy, question mark? Like... That's what's happening right now, and I'm totally on board for some wackiness, because quite honestly, the X-Men have not been that great lately, and I'm just I'm ready to try something else. Oh, and Uncanny X-Men is also coming out. So I've got seven X-Men books that I'm tied into for the next five to eight months. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so if there is... see the Marvel no, people at their office. Oh no, Mike says he's quitting again. No, no. <laughs> So if any of you do have a lead on an X-Men anonymous, you know, help group, you know, you know how to get a hold of the show, you know how to get a hold of Mike, you can talk them down off the list. If you have intervention tactics, just send us the pamphlet because we need it. (laughs) For our show this week, we are talking about a very well broad topic i'll say war in comics how is it depicted is that good or bad so on and so forth so we've got a little bit of history we've got some other pieces that we're going to talk about maybe some give you some recommendations for books that we think are good depictions of war which is kind of a weird thing to say because war is not good at least that's the stance I think we're all taking here. Um, so, Nick, Nick, Paul, you guys did a little bit of diving into this. Do you guys want to start like with some history behind where war comics come from? And then we can go into some of the recommendations that we had. Well, Mike, uh, Warren Comics was established in 1957, um, and it's best known for publishing the horror anthology titles like Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella. Okay. Um, oh, you meant War in Comics. I was looking up yeah. Warren Comics. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm... Oh, boy. So sorry about that. Oops. Uh, no, uh, in all seriousness, I think this is an interesting topic because like like romance or like Westerns, war comics were incredibly popular as a genre right. in the you know 40s and 50s, even the 60s, to the point where you have characters in mainstream DC and Marvel continuity that were from, you know, war comics. Like, you know, Nick Fury is Sergeant Fury in the Highland Commandos. You have Sergeant Rock from DC, you know, the losers. These are characters that started out in genre comics that were so popular that became mainstream, you know, characters in their universes. So, and, and, and like other um, genres like Westerns and and romances, those war comics sort of fell out of favor in the seventies and eighties. And only recently in the past, like 10, 15 years, it started to come, come back in any sort of real way. I mean, yeah, I think like what's, what's really interesting about this is like, you still see some of those characters around, but they've dramatically changed. Yeah, right, like yeah. your Nick Fury or your maybe your Sergeant Rock. I don't actually know enough about Sergeant Rock, but Nick Fury, for example, is no longer and hasn't really been a person that is like fighting the war so much as right. he is strategically organizing how we can 
fight something. I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it's really weird because it's not the way that we fight wars has dramatically changed, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. no longer getting in the trenches and fighting against you know your enemy across some big battleground. Instead, it's you know precision attacks where like a, a team of seven elite forces jump into a room and they blow up a building and they save the person. I don't know. Um, is that how war is fought? <laughs> is this war now? Uh, I, I, again, I, I'm incredibly ignorant. I am a very lucky person to never have to have dealt with that in my entire life, right? right? Um, but it, I think you, you see characters like Nick Fury change over time as the way that we do mil- like military tactics in general has changed, mm-hmm. um, which I think is interesting. But there are tons and tons of comics still about all of this, like yeah. comics that came out in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that were just mm-hmm. about like war is hell, like. And I think that was the name of an actual comic, War is Hell. And it was just stories about people surviving in World War II-esque situations. Yeah, and I think that's that's what's kind of interesting is that the, you know, the comic book genre or comic book medium is sort of intertwined with the history of World War II in a weird way because, mm-hmm. you know, the comic books sort of emerge in the mid-30s. And by the time World War II starts, comic books are incredibly popular. And of course, they they deal with that issue, the, the, you know, the war that's going on. And that's why you have stories about Superman or Wonder Woman or, you know, Captain America who's created as a response to the war in Europe. And, you know, those characters going overseas and fighting, everything, every aspect of pop culture was geared toward the war at that time, because that was, ever, was on everyone's mind. And mm-hmm. over the few past few decades, those, you know, war movies and comics, they were incredibly popular. But as there were some unpopular wars in the past few decades. That's, I think, where the genre sort of tails out. And then you, I think you end up getting more interesting stories as a result of that, where people look at the sort of moral ambiguity or more nuanced takes of what war really is. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in during World War II, it's obviously very, you know, patriotic and it is sort of a, a singular focused thing that everyone's focused on one, has one opinion about in a weird way. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think... You can't really separate the history of comics without talking about that big chunk of it was, you know, at the beginning of World War II. Yeah, definitely. Nick, you've got a whole spew of notes sure. that are on this piece of yeah. screen that <laughs> I'm looking document, at. On this document, yeah. On this document. Please go into some information about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Paul, Paul got at some of this already, but... War comics obviously began largely, uh, you know, they really gained popularity in English-speaking countries following World War II. What a lot of people maybe don't know or aren't aware of is that uh, they really, um, they began prior to U.S. involvement in World War II. And so when a lot of people see the famous cover of Captain America punching uh, Hitler, and I think this is true of this cover as well. God, I'd hate to be wrong on this. I'm sure Paul can tell me. That was actually <laughs> done prior to the U.S. actually entering the war because right. a lot of these books were actually trying to get America to see, you know, what was going on and, and get us into the war actively. Right. So so, so you've got that going on. Um most of these stories actually were really only just parts of multi-genre omnibuses being published at the time. And it was really mm-hmm. only after World War II that books really became devoted solely to war stories. At that point, they actually mm-hmm. became their own titles. Uh, and for the most part, they focused on military involvement in World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. Paul already touched on some of the books that DC and Marvel had. Um but you did have other publishers like EC Comics with titles like Frontline Combat and Two-Fisted Tales. This was around the mid-50s, give or take. And they depicted the more so the realistic horrors of war, 
Um, both of um, EC was being headed up by editor Harvey Kurtzman at the time, and he was definitely not like pushing like a like rah rah sis boom ba isn't war like the greatest thing ever. He had a very grounded <laughs> understanding of everything you know that comes with with the trappings of war. Um, what's interesting is that a lot of these um, long running books, a lot of these war comics that started in the fifties, really, a lot of them ran for like a really long time. But most of them stopped somewhere around the early to mid 80s, which kind of coincides with what Paul was saying with the idea that uh, as America kept fighting, uh, I guess, quote unquote, increasingly unpopular wars, uh, these books kind of tapered with that, you know, Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just laughing at Nick not wanting to make a stand and say anything and instead just <laughs> quoting something that Paul literally said six minutes ago. Right. Um, anyway, Paul used this phrase, not me. Yeah, I yeah. love all of the wars. No. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Which uh, one's no, my I mean, favorite? I can't pick. No. Jesus Christ. You guys are just going to paint me out, like, just paint me out to be this huge war hawk, you know? Jesus. Oh, yes. I didn't know, Good. but uh, we're going to reveal today how much of an investment Nick has in Halliburton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how many private military uh, corporations I, uh, I I've I fund out of dark mo- dark money channels? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Jesus, uh, but Nick, you raise an interesting point there, where you know even as early as the fifties, you had books that were a little more critical or trying to be more realistic in the portrayals of war, because, and I think. That's due to the fact that a lot of comic book creators went and served in World War II, and they saw things firsthand, and they came right. back. It's like that's it's not really the sort of what you see in the movies. It's not exactly. John Wayne. Like it's something exactly. very different. I mean, I think that's and you you did mention the famous ca- cover of Captain America number one that did come out in July of 1941. So that's you know a few months before Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so that's a bold statement to show your your debuting comic book character punching the leader of a f- sovereign nation. You know. In the face, yeah, and the the legend has it that you know Kirby had family that still lived in Germany, so he knew what, what was, was going, going on. Down. You know him and Joe Simon, so that's why they created Captain America and put that on the cover. And a lot of there was a big contingent of German Americans in New York at the time who either didn't know or were choosing to ignore what Hitler was really doing at the time. You know, in mm-hmm. the late '30s, early '40s. So they thought that that was a big affront to their heritage to show the leader of their, you know, quote unquote homeland being punched by Captain America. And they actually called death threats to Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. And the mayor of New York, LaGuardia, had to send extra policemen to the Marvel or Timely Comics, I guess it was at the time, offices to protect Kirby and Simon from angry fans or angry, you know, angry people. Didn't they reportedly tell Kirby about this once or twice and he just basically went to go get on his coat and go downstairs and like yeah. fight them? <laughs> yeah, he basically did call up to the office and say, hey, Kirby, we got a jackass. People don't hear that aren't happy with you. And he would go down to the lobby. And by the time he got there, they had already laughed. But I'm sure he would have <laughs> held his own against them. So, you know, and that's, and that's what's kind of interesting. I think that the experiences that those those creators had overseas influence the comics that they made after when they came back. Cause Kirby, of course, right. when served, you know, he was in the shit, as they say, he was at the battle of the bulge, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, when he comes back and he does war comics, they're not the, you know, happy, you know, John Wayne heroic type stories. They're very gritty and very, you know, realistic. And I think as proud as he was of serving, he didn't want to portray it 
you know, uh, with with rose colored glasses or whatever. He didn't want to. He'd want. He wanted to portray it as realistically as he could. You know. Yeah, th- you posted a in the show notes. You gave us a link to this a cover of a foxhole war comic or something yeah. like that, yeah. and yeah. it does not look fun. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> very brutal. Like there, there is no like celebratory hey we're gonna go kill them bad guys it's like this is what happens in the aftermath of war and i think that's what becomes more and more of these stories is the fallout of war like sure we're gonna go save the day but what's actually happening be after everyone passes through and all those people that sacrifice their lives like this is what the actual ramifications are and that i think becomes more and more of the focus in a lot of comics moving forward in the 70s and 80s and 90s where you start to hear comics that are like, well, I was in war and now, you know, I came back and I'm all screwed up or whatever. Like that starts to be a thing to the point where we make it a trope where we've got like this whole idea of the Vietnam vet who came back and then went crazy, uh, Mm -hmm. which is something that actually happened, right? Not to say that it happened every day, but people were massively screwed up after having to go fight in this war. And to say that that didn't happen in, to the folks that fought in World War II is like a total naive thing to think because it Mm -hmm. happens Mm -hmm. in every war. If people are going to go fight and kill each other it has ramifications and i think comics started to evolve to tell that story even more to say it's not about going and saving the day it's about the people that actually went out and sacrificed their lives and here are their stories and we still get those comics even to this day um yeah i which i I think is i mean it's still like a central thing in almost every mainstream comic and even non-mainstream comics like war is still a thing that we talk about because we're constantly in war um but that's the the whole other topic but i think like that is something to to think about the evolution of it wasn't about let's go punch nazis in the face becoming like i survived and my 30 friends didn't and that's like the screwed up part about it yeah and i i think comics as a medium are really good at these types of stories because it's a medium that can do action, you know, uh, actual firefights, portrayal of what happens in war mm-hmm. really well, and can do quiet, reflective moments really well, too. That's why books like, you know, even more recent example, like uh, Sheriff of Babylon, which is technically a war book, you know, that Tom sure. King did oh, with totally. Mitch Garrods. Yeah. I mean, and that is a book that, you know, isn't, that seems like a very realistic portrayal. It's not glorifying anything and it's a book that manages to be nuanced and look at the moral ambiguity of the situation in a very unique and special way that i don't think other mediums could really do well so i think there's a weird way where comics kind of fit these types of stories really well yeah totally i i think what's also kind of interesting and this is like a minor aside but i found it kind of curious is that between people like, say, Kirby and also um, Will Eisner, you have this weird sort of intersection of war in comics when some of these people go overseas or they join the military and people find out about their skills and all of a sudden they're like performing this weird hybridization of what they were doing before the military as well as during like, I was mm-hmm. reading that Kirby, once they found out that he was an artist, one of the officers was like, oh, you can draw, uh, you're the scout now. Like, we want you to go and go, Ooh. you know, figure out where all really? the emplacements are and draw them. And it's like a super dangerous job, right? Yeah, yeah. But wow. after they found out, they, they had him do that. And then on a slightly less dangerous note, <clears throat> I was reading in the introduction to... uh 
Will Eisner's uh, last day in Vietnam, which, holy shit, here's this guy writing and drawing a book at 83, like, good God, not sitting on his <laughs> laurels, holy shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. He talks about how um, he was assigned to this unit called the Preventative Maintenance Unit, which was like a newish, newerish creation to deal with the increasingly mechanized nature of the military. Um, and he pitched using comics to instruct soldiers in bootstrap repairs under combat conditions. And so he ended up, in order to do research for this, he had to go and visit all of these different field units to properly depict realistic situations. Mm. So he ended up being one of those people that you always hear about when they talk about, you know, it's not a coincidence that all these army manuals are done via comics or, or sequential art because people pick it up faster. And so I didn't yeah. know that he was a part of that, which yeah, that's interesting. I just found that kind of curious that we have this odd intersection of, you know, before and after the war, uh, before and during the war and, and this fusion of comics and, and, and war, you know, mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. And I just want to add that, you know, during World War Two, and I probably still even today, I think there's a large um, comic book publishers will send comics overseas to troops as a form of entertainment. So I think that's part of what made comics very popular right after World War Two is this boom of, you know, GIs coming back. And this is, you know, what they entertain themselves with. So they're still going to buy them when they get back home. And then, you know, today there are organizations that do collect comics. You can donate old comics you're not reading anymore to like the USO or whatever, you know, organizations mm-hmm. that help troops and they'll send them overseas as entertainment. So, you know, it's comics are a sort of universal art form or language in that way where kind of everyone enjoys them, especially if you're really starved for entertainment, you know, in situations like that, it probably would really, but it's probably really nice to have something like a comic to keep you entertained. Right. And I think we're really focusing here on how comics have shaped kind of the Western world, and we see how Western wars are depicted, mm-hmm. right, or, or wars from the perspective of the American, like, right. GI, where I know that there are plenty of comics out there that are done by, you know, Franco-Belgian artists and British artists, and, and you know, even, even going so far as, you know, we could talk about manga, too, that's a whole other thing, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. how comics are used to portray all these different things. I think, you know, the book that you were talking about before, Nick, um, about Nanjing, like, I know that that i believe that person the the creator ethan young is an american author but um i know that there are also manga and there are also like chinese comics and i know they have a name and i'm sorry i can't remember what they're called um Mangwa, maybe that's it's like M A N H U A or something like that. I think. Yeah, and they yeah. all that have talked about this conflict as well. Um, mm-hmm. And to see the different perspectives on that is a whole massive thing, right? Because oh, sure. coming from yeah. whatever country is actually writing the story, you get wildly different perspectives on it. Um, and I think, like to to this day, like that whole event is still disputed on in some fronts though many many historians come to believe the same thing there are people that are still deniers of some of it and it's a whole thing so like war is a very touchy subject and it seems like we've got all these comics about war in the united states we're like yeah these are the definitive accounts of what's happening or even in the fictional case it's like yeah america's gonna come in to save the day uh there are definitely comics that portray the opposite um and it's not necessarily like people who were pro-Nazi Germany writing comics about Americans, but, like, people that are from Vietnam talking about how when the Americans showed up, it was awful. 
you know, when during the Vietnam War. So th- these stories out there exist. They mo- they exist from multiple perspectives. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any written down, but I will go and find some and put them in the show notes for people who are interested in this kind of stuff. And I think we can maybe use this to kind of tangent or segue into some examples of comics that we've read that were about war that we mm-hmm. enjoyed or we liked how they were depicted things. And I think they're going to be more more modern, at least my are, mine are. But um, I- I'd like to hear what you guys had as far as like, comics that you read that you enjoyed that were about war in general? Um, I've got a couple here that I'll, I'll run through uh, kind of quickly. Um, obviously, the first one I want to talk about, is, of course, is Jack Kirby's Losers stories that he did for DC in the early 70s. He did war comics in the 50s, um, but when he was working for DC in the early 70s, that that era of Kirby's my favorite. And what's interesting is that he started doing stories for the the war comic that DC had at the time called Our Fighting Forces, and the characters were the losers. Um, and it's interesting to see Kirby work on characters that he didn't originally create because those characters go back to the 50s. And Kirby actually took umbrage to the term losers being used because he didn't think anyone that he served with in World War II was a loser. So mm-hmm. he, he didn't really appreciate that title. But he used those stories to blend his real life experiences he had in Europe with sort of a heightened, um, you know, uh, sense of morality in a weird way. Like, a lot of the stories are these sort of little, like, moral tales about the ambiguity of war or, you know, what true heroism really is and stuff. They're they're really good comics because I think that it is Kirby trying to be as autobiographical and uh, or realistic as he can, you know? But he's so given to hyperbole that it comes out as being over the top. Sure, Um, sure. There's a couple of really good stories in there. There's one uh, called Ivan, which is actually told from the perspective of a of a, a man in a, I think it's Ukrainian or Russian village that gets taken over by the Nazis. And this guy who's kind of a, he has no, he's kind of a loser, you know, like an actual loser in this town, like no one <laughs> likes him. But he gets, he gets like a small bit of power from the Nazis. Like he's put in charge of something and it goes straight to his head and he turns on his own countrymen. And it's, it's a story about what power and authority can do to change someone. It's a great little story and it doesn't, it looks like Kirby and it's over the top, but it's not as bombastic as you're kind of used to, to uh, his stories being in a weird way. Sure. So that stuff's really great. Um, Garth Ennis's Battlefields, which was a series that he did in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a series of like little three issue miniseries that he did. And this is honestly my favorite stuff I've read by Garth Ennis. Cause I go back and forth on his stuff, but sure. this yeah. is, That's this is fair. him. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what I like about this is it is, it is gratuitous at times, but it's very grounded and realistic. You know, it's not a humor book. It's not him trying not to be boys. shocking. Exactly. It's not the boys. It's not preacher. It is based on real things that happened in World War II from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. The first story arc is called The Night Witches, and it's about um, a group of Russian women who are trained as fighter pilots by the Soviets to fight in World War II. And of course, they get the worst possible equipment. Their planes are always breaking. They have the most dangerous missions. But it's about how these women kind of band together and fight. And it's a kind of a forgotten part of World War II history. Or there, another story is about, you know, the British tank troops fighting in Africa. And it's parts of World War II that you kind of forget were going on since man, most of the media about the war is about Europe or Japan. So it's kind of interesting to see, like, uh, stories told from different perspectives. So I really like that one a lot. And he has a bunch of great artists working on with that with that series. Gotcha. And then, uh, and then um, 
one more I want to recommend. I actually read this book in preparation for this podcast, this very topic, uh, The Nam, which is a book that Marvel did in the mid-80s about Vietnam. Um, it's written by Doug Murray, who was a Vietnam vet, and art by Michael Golden. And it was edited by, edited by Larry Hama, who's best known for writing the G.I. Joe series for Marvel in the 80s. Huh. And this book, um, it it I read the first volume of it. I really enjoyed it. It's a book that's gotten a lot of con- critical praise, especially over the past few years, for being a realistic, honest portrayal of Vietnam within the limits of it being, you know, comics of code approved book. I mean, it can't go all the way, but yeah. within those within those limits, it is Meaning a surprising it's not a full metal jacket. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And <laughs> it's interesting that so it came out in nineteen eighty six, which is kind of an interesting time because that's only 10 or 11 years after the end of Vietnam. And I don't think people were ready to talk about that war because it was controversial and very unpopular. Sure. But uh, Murray and Golden and Hama do an amazing job of trying to capture the what it felt like to be on the ground you know, during the war. So it's interesting because the book, it progresses in real time. So each issue, a month has passed in the war. So you actually see the characters grow and change over time. The, the, you know, blonde, blue eyed, fresh baby faced kid who lands in Vietnam at age 18 in the first issue, when you're six, seven issues in, he's been, you know, in country for over half a year, you know, and you can see his attitude change and to see the people around him change. And I just think as a book to, as something to capture that at that time when people weren't willing to talk about that book, it's pretty amazing. And I think it's, it's held up really well. And I, oddly enough, I remember being a kid and seeing a copy of this comic on like the spinner rack at the grocery store because I'm, I'm old enough okay. to remember doing that. I remember seeing it. I remember <laughs> being a kid and thinking, well, the Batman's not in that, so I'm not going to buy it. But <laughs> I remember seeing the cover. And you know when you're a kid and you know something like looks appealing, but you you know it's not for you or you know it's, it might be right. scary, you know? Oh, yeah. Scary is the key word there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember seeing a cop, an issue of the Nam and thinking, okay, that looks cool, but I know it's not for me. Like that's not, I can't buy that. And then it took you know thirty years, but here I'm actually finally reading it, and I really enjoyed it. So I, I recommend that book wholeheartedly. Cool. Yeah, I've I've only got a couple examples. I mean, I think the the one that I I really want to bring up here is the book Uber, which mm-hmm. is it's a more modern book. And the thing about this is is that. It's, it's a superhero book in a weird way, or it's a book about superpowered individuals, but I think that even with that, the story takes the idea of war seriously. Like, it's not, it's over the top in the, in the regards of, like, what if nukes were a thing when the war really started going, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the opening of Uber, um, this is by Kieran Gillen and a handful of different artists, and right now he's doing a second run of the book where it's like following up on the first 30 issues, which was about the beginnings of the war with these superpowered individuals, and the second half is, well, the Nazis have come to the United States, um, and things are getting pretty bad with these superpowered individuals, but... Kieran Gillen, who's writing this book, you know, he did his homework to make a story that feels really realistic, despite these quote-unquote battleships and other powered people that are created using this catalyst, and the focus isn't so much on, look at what these superheroes can do, or these villains can do, I should say, it's more about, look at the atrocities committed by war, and how is this not that much different than what actually happened in World War II, 
And mm-hmm. I, I, I've always appreciated the the amount of detail that Gillen goes into in the back matter for this book to talk about how he's read a bunch of things in order to actually figure out what the motivations would be if things started to change. And you start to think of the people who are these super-powered individuals as less of humans and more of just super weapons. And that becomes kind of like a crux or like a thing in the book where... They're, these these humans that have these powers are no longer thought of as humans anymore. And that's like a whole level of this thing. But I think what makes this book interesting is it's very in your face with the death and destruction, but not in a way that like glorifies it. And instead, it kind of shows you war is really, really terrible. This is mm-hmm. what happens. These are the This is the ramifications of war. Regardless of if people were just using tanks and guns, this is what happens when they start using ballistic missiles. This is what happens when you start having the capability to decimate entire cities by the push of a button. You know, and instead it's it's kind of filtered through this layer of these humans with these superpowers. But it's no different than if you think about modern war where we just fly a jet over and it bombs an entire village. Like, that is nasty. And I think Uber does a very good job of reflecting that, like, war is very, very bad. <laughs> Putting it, like, very bluntly and simply, but that's <laughs> the only way I can think about it. And this book goes into some of the intricacies of, like, how strategy works when you have different things. And it's... Again, it's not like glorifying it by any means, but it's just showing the horrors of war. And I really appreciate about it because it's it seems on the surface, if you look at Uber, there's just Nazi paraphernalia all over it. And I feel really weird picking the book up at the shop. But uh, <laughs> sure, sure. I promise you, it is not glorifying Nazis in any way. And in fact, it's making them out to be even worse than they probably are depicted in some other comics rather than being these over-the-top, like, we must kill all the people. Instead, it's like, portraying them as humans that understand what they're doing and still doing these horrible things. And that's even more terrifying reading this book because this is published by Avatar Press and they've got their whole shtick of how they you know, make books that are just way over the top and gory. And I think Uber really, really walks on that line of being over the top and actually telling like a very compelling story. Not to say that you can't get that from Avatar, but Uber, I think, is one of the few books that I've been consistently reading for multiple years, and I feel like Gillen is doing a very good job with this book to show you that there are some terrible, terrible things that happen in wartime, um, and he's using these superheroed individuals to kind of, I guess, add a different, a new layer to talk about that. But he is just, the book is ultimately just talking about the horrors of war, and I, I've... I've always really appreciated this book for that reason. Mm-hmm. It may not be everyone's that, cup of tea. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a book that I've often, you know, been curious to check out, but I just haven't pulled the trigger on it. No pun, no pun intended, but yeah. I might have to yeah. check it, check it mm-hmm. out at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of comics to read. It's, like I said, there are 30 issues to the first, I guess, like, first half of the story, and the second half is still ongoing, very slowly coming out um, for whatever reason, but uh, it's... I, I really appreciate it. I think Gillen is telling a good story without being like just trying to sh- throw gore and death and blood in your face. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Nick, did you have any books that you read on top of your, your Nanjing book that, that you'd want to talk about? Sure. I mean, I would definitely recommend Last Day in Vietnam, which is, uh, it's only about 80 pages and it's six relatively short stories, five of which are based on... um. Eisner's work as a civilian contractor in Vietnam and Korea. And then the final one involves his own time uh, in the military during World War II. Uh, And I would definitely recommend those. There's a really great quote in the um, introduction by Eisner 
and he says, uh, These stories in this work were culled from an inventory of encounters with unforgettable people I met during the years I was involved in the military. Essentially, these are stories about soldiers in wartime who are engaged in a larger combat. And I think that uh, he doesn't elaborate on that, but when you read these stories, you you sort of understand what he's getting at, that some of these people are are bringing, you know, greater problems in their lives to bear, or they're, you know, they're at war, but they're reconciling with personal issues or personal trauma or, or things that came before the war. Um, there's a one story that's probably one of the most messed up things, and it's only like six pages, and it's called A Dull Day in Korea, and it's about this good, good old southern boy who has, you know, joined the American forces, and he goes off talking about how he had a good life back home, but he really didn't. He's just trying to hide it, basically. And he didn't get any love from his dad, and his dad would take him hunting. And so, you know, that's what he remembers doing back home. And now in Korea, um, just as a matter of fact, when he's bored, just the thing that he does when he's bored, he just turns his scope onto, like, the area that's in the firing range, and he'll just try to pick off people who are in the in the um firing range and it's it's just so messed up because there's not even like a sense of just virulent hate or malice in this idea for him for him it's just a matter of fact like what one does when one's bored when you're there that's just mm -hmm. accepted to be the thing you do um huh. and thankfully his commanding officer stops him at the end uh, but like that little incident and then you know Eisner saying this really happened and I you know I encountered this uh, I mean, it just shows you, you know, how, how these things can change you and, and change what you consider to be like, you know, an accepted normal, you know what I mean? Like, a what, what becomes the new normal for you or what, you know, changes your morality or whatnot. So I would definitely recommend that. Uh, that story is just, it's like six pages and it's one of the most messed up things. Cause like I said, it's not like, oh, I really hate so-and-so. It's just like, oh, this is just what you do here. That's it, crazy. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, beyond that, uh, <laughs> a few others briefly, I guess. Um, Lazarus, I think, is a great story about war. Oh, sure. And I think in terms of showing you who benefits from war, who has to pay the price when war is, uh, you know, brought about, who ends up fighting the war, who ends up suffering, who ends up profiting. And just the idea that, yeah, there are some people that we would say in Lazarus, this person is the hero, or these people are the heroes, or these people are the good guys, but ultimately everyone is, it's 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 varying shades of bad, basically. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, It's yeah. just, uh, as well as varying perspectives on, on bad, uh, but I, I think Lazarus is a great book about um, war. Uh, the New Frontier, I've also always thought of uh, thought of as being an interesting book about war. Uh, Darwin Cook's The New Frontier, uh, yeah. which, of course, attempts mm -hmm. to reconcile, much like Uber, how do you reconcile superheroes slash comics um, interacting with um, the historic, like the American war experience? Like, how do you, how do you... Uh, you know, make those two worlds interact and, 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 um, what, you know, what's the fallout from that? Um, yeah, that's, that's, I've, I started reading that book and it's very long. The issues are very long. 
I, I found. There's a lot yes. to read in those comics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so be prepared. Because I was like, oh, I've got four issues of New Frontier. Let's sit down and read this. And I got three quarters of the way through the first issue. And I was like, how are we not done yet? Uh, they're very long. I don't want to mean to say that it's like drawn out by any means, but it's not what I was expected. Like I went in with a different mindset. Um, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I did want to plug, there are two books that I forgot to put in my notes that I wanted to bring up. Like, there's a one. There's some Wonder Woman comics that take place during World War II, um, where I believe she talks about the war, and I've, I've got a link to that in the show notes. But there was a, a Trina Robbins book that I had sent to myself. It's called Babes in Arms. Uh, sorry, let me get the actual title here. It's called Babes in Arms, Women in the Comics... Women in the Comics During World War II, uh, which is, I think, Trina Robbins and a ton of different artists telling like little stories about women during World War II, either fighting or doing things back home. That's a whole thing, because I realized that a lot of the books we're talking about here are just about men or by men <laughs> during World War II. And I think there are a lot of comics, and there are at least some stories out there that are about women during World War II, during Vietnam. Um, that and I, I know you'd mentioned like a, a story earlier, uh, about the like the women in Russia from uh, yeah. Garth Ennis, but um, there are other things. Trina Robbins, you know, it's a fantastic individual, but uh, I did want to bring that up because I had a link to it. I just forgot to put it in my notes. <laughs> Sorry about that. I haven't yeah, read it yet, but it's on. It's been on my forever list to read. And you know, maybe just as as an aside there to to uh, to follow up on that point, a book that just came to mind during our discussion uh, that I read. Uh, I think came out two years ago is called Rolling Blackouts and it's by Sarah Glidden. It was published by John and Quarterly. And that's, it's a book that maybe isn't technically a war comic, but it's about um, Sarah Glidden, her real life experience traveling to Syria with a group of uh, independent journalists to cover the refugee crisis that's happening as a result of the invasion of Iraq. So it's a book that is looking at the actual on the ground ramifications of war from a very different lens. And the book is really about these journalists asking, like, how do we tell these stories objectively? Do we have the right to tell these stories? You know, what's our role in telling the world about this refugee crisis that people don't really know about? It's a very heavy book, and it raises a lot of interesting questions, but it's a book that I think gives you a perspective on the the, the fallout of war, what, what the real human cost is after the fact, you know, and it's a perspective that you just don't hear a lot of times in most media. So I, I would recommend that book a lot as well. Gotcha. The last the last book that I had on my list um, was I, I got about halfway through reading it for today. Um, it's a, it's a very good, well drawn, well put together book. And it, honestly, if I hadn't run out of time before we started recording, I probably would have finished it today. Um, the ha- Harlem Hellfighters by Max Brooks and Kanan White. Kanan uh, White also did a lot of the work or a lot of the art on. Um, Uber for a while, which is kind of what drew me to the book. And a friend of mine got me this book as a present a couple years back, and it's kind of been sitting on my shelf um, to read. And I, it's a black and white book, and it's all about a fictional group of African American fighters in, during World War One, which I thought was like that's a very interesting time to focus on. And I was I did double check, but it was definitely World War One because um, hmm. they keep talking about the Kaiser and how they have to go fight the Kaiser. And it's it's a really interesting story about interesting story about these African Americans who, of course, are you know they're given the worst weapons or they're not given any weapons at all to prepare and train, and then they're shipped out like a couple weeks after their initial training, which um, in comparison to the, their white uh, the white counterparts have a couple months of training and. The where I got to in the book is they were on a boat traveling across to um, Europe to fight in the war, and man, oh man, it is a hard book to put down. It's it's very well done. I think Max Brooks did a great job with the writing. Canan's White, or, excuse me, Canan White's 
Um, art is fantastic from beginning to end. I've always appreciated that guy's art from what I saw in Uber. Um, and to see it in this other book is, is fantastic because there's not superhero people. There's, this is just regular folk fighting in this war. Um, and I think like if you're, if you're looking for like a really solid fictional tale, cause like there is no real super record of what's, what happened to African Americans during World War One. but I think Brooks took a bunch of small stories and then turned them into an experience of what a band of individuals had to deal with um, as African Americans in the United States having to go to war and fight alongside people. And for the first time, I think the, the story covers this idea of uh, this platoon having an African American uh, sergeant actually leading them compared to all the previous wars where African-American platoons had a white person leading their platoon uh, as they went into battle. Uh, and so there's a lot of different things being covered in the book and I have yet to finish it. But from what I mm-hmm. read about the first half is very, very good. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, I guess final thoughts on war in comics. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's there's really like, I don't know how much more to say there there is because it seems like we kind of have a general idea like shit is bad and it's comics very much rotate around this idea or revolve around this idea of war is a thing that happens and documenting it works really well in comics as i think paul you said a couple times now so Mm -hmm. i mean what other thoughts or final thoughts do you guys have about this i think our conversation shows that you know this isn't a singular topic with you know one opinion or one depiction in comics we have a, a variety of different you know wars to talk about different perspectives and in some sense, it it's an unpleasant topic, but it's one that I think comics handle really well, as as we've said, and it's one that, because of the nature of comic books, allows for a more diverse opinions and perspectives than than like say most war movies or you know other media. So, I think there's a whole world out there. If it's a, if I'm losing my train of thought, sorry. Well, I, I think what Paul was getting at. Uh, as well was just the fact that in the modern day and age, just with how much easier it is to create and publish um, your own work, you know, without the need of like the blessing of the big two or whatever, I think it's a really Mm -hmm. good time for, we've seen it as a great time for just diverse and varied perspectives and all sorts of other genres and, and whatnot. But I think war is no different. I think we're starting to see, um, just these multifaceted perspectives on these, events and and conflicts that we we thought we had you know previously understood right and and these books i think a lot of the ones we've mentioned or recommended on the show so far are ones that cover topics that people might not be that familiar with so they're good educational books in that sense too if you don't know much about vietnam the nam is a is going to fill you in on that or you know the the will eister book is give you a perspective on vietnam that you're not going to get anywhere else yeah definitely well, thanks for putting in the research time this week, guys. I really appreciate <laughs> it. I mean, I know that this is like really heavy stuff to dive into, but um, it's definitely a core piece of comics history and, and comics today. I think we're still seeing more and more comics coming out of people telling autobiographical stories or biographical stories about modern wartime things like the book you were talking about, Paul. And I know that there are plenty of others um, that are coming out uh, that are either illustrated books or they are complete beginning to end graphic novels about various things that are happen as, happening across the world as these various crises across mm-hmm. the world occur. Like, it's it's a very dark thing, but it's something that it's good to hear that they're documented in something that's not just prose, so that people right. can, you know, digest them in a different way, or they can actually get a visual side to actually what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Cool. Well, let's. Uh, let, I'm gonna wrap things up here. I guess. Uh, <laughs> I get like thank you guys again. You can follow us all on Twitter. You can follow Paul at Ohio Poly. You can follow Nick at Death Star Plans. You can follow me at Mike Rappin, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast, where we post all sorts of things. And I've been using our Instagram because now we have an Instagram. So make sure you go follow us there. Instagram is IRCB Podcast as well. You can also join the Goodreads group if you're not a member there already. We have over 500 people over there talking about comics they like, great yes. conversations, um, amazing threads. We have a book of the month thread over there, and we have a 2019 reading challenge that's getting underway, so go over there and check that out. You can also go to ircbpodcast.com, where we have uh, show notes for each episode. We have our pronunciation guide, which we'll need to update after this episode, I think. Mm-hmm. And we can also buy merch. We've got t-shirts, pins, and physical copies of our zine over there. And if you enjoy the show, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, whatever podcasting platform you use. Tell your friends about it. Um, and just, you know, let spread the word about the show. We really appreciate that. And, you know, before uh, we move on, I forgot to yeah. do a major shout-out before we started the topic. <laughs> no. Cobra Kaiser wrote a review on iTunes. Thank you so much, Cobra Kaiser. That was a very nice review that you wrote. I really appreciate that. We all really appreciate that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We would also encourage you to go ahead and email the show if you have comments, questions, jokes puns uh x-men trivia for mike if you have any of that <laughs> try me that goes to ircb <laughs> at destroy also go ahead and subscribe to our patreon that's patreon.com forward slash ircb podcast if you want episodes a day before they come out check it out if you want to read uh articles that we're posting or you want to get your hands on our show notes that's there too it's early access to a whole bunch of different things and so much more infinity shred does all the music for our show they are the best band in the universe they do have a new album coming out i've been saying it for months but i keep seeing (laughs) posts on instagram about it it's coming they do all the music thank you so much for letting us use it xander he's that character who's been hiding his power for the first two-thirds of the movie and then busts it out in the last minute to save the day (laughs) he also edits the show i want to say thank you to paul and nick and everybody who's listening out there thank you guys for writing reviews and interacting with us on twitter and instagram and all that stuff until next time comics are good And so are you.